uh, you, you don't think you're distorting history? I mean, the Auschwitz no, Memorial has some fairly strong credentials as well. They do, absolutely. But I don't think I am. And I come back to the notion that, as with the tattooist, I am not telling the story of the Holocaust, I'm just telling a story. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am, a daily podcast by The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. Australian author Heather Morris's books about the Holocaust have sold millions of copies, but the people she's writing about are in many ways unrecognisable to their families and to the historical record. 75 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, Christine Keneally on the responsibility to tell the truth about what happened in those camps. So, Christine, can you tell me how Heather Morris came to be writing these very successful historical fiction novels about the Holocaust? Heather Morris was from New Zealand originally. She became an Australian resident. She's been living in Australia for a really long time and raised her family here. Christine Keneally is an author and investigative journalist. She writes for The Monthly. And for a long time she worked as an office manager and was at the same time as a lot of us are an aspiring artist. She was an aspiring screenwriter and she was working on screenplays for many years until someone introduced her in 2003 to a man called Lali Sokolov. Can you tell me your name? Yes, my name is Lou Ludwig born Sokolov. Born 28 October 1916 in Czechoslovakia. He was in his 80s, was a Jewish man living in Caulfield, and he wanted someone to tell the story of his life. And his life was absolutely extraordinary. Is Sokolov the name you were born with? No. My name was Eisenberg. I, I changed it when I came back from the camp. He had been in Auschwitz from 1942 to 1945 and he was forced, as many inmates of Auschwitz were forced to do, jobs. I had a name in the camp and the name was Tetovirer. Everybody knew me under that name, even the SS. He was one of the tattooists of Auschwitz, so he tattooed hundreds and thousands of people as they came in the gates of Auschwitz and gave them a number assigned by the Nazis. Because you've been a number in the camp. You didn't have a name, right? You've been a number. Tell me about how the, the conversations that she had with him turned into a book. Yeah, so I guess uh, the story goes, and this has been really part of the promotion of the book, they developed this friendship over many years, and originally she was going to write a screenplay about the story of uh, the tattooist, but she decided to turn it into a novel. She actually tried a Kickstarter, I believe, at one point, and then an editor at Echo Press in Melbourne saw the Kickstarter, and they took it from there. It turned into a novel, a fictional story set inside a real world. So... Her novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, what was the response when it came out? It was an absolute smash hit. It was an absolute publishing phenomenon. The Tattooist of Auschwitz, a debut novel, has sold more than a million copies and became a global bestseller. Heather Morris is, of course, the author of the international bestselling and number one New York Times bestselling, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Auschwitz. Heather Morris, welcome it sold many, many millions of copies. Publishers all across the world bought the book and it's been translated into, I've, I've lost count of how many languages. So as it became more and more popular, as more and more people read it, certain things started to be raised. 
There were questions both about the representation of Auschwitz in particular, but also about specific details and facts in the book. There was a blogger who pointed out that the story of Lali Sokolov finding medicine to save Gita Furman, the woman who later became his wife. She was sick and he found penicillin for her, but penicillin wasn't actually available at all at the time. So that was clearly not the case. I was writing a newspaper article about it and I became really interested in the numbers that uh, Sokolov was tattooing on the inmates of Auschwitz. Gita Furman's number plays this critical role in the book. He apparently falls in love with her the day he meets her. She's standing before him in the line waiting for her tattoo and he tattoos the number 34902 on her arm. But When I was looking into it, trying to understand actually how the numbers worked, it struck me that it wasn't possible for someone with that number to have entered Auschwitz on the day that she supposedly did enter Auschwitz. So I looked into it further. Eventually, I was able to sit down and watch her Shoah Foundation interview, which was videotaped in the 1990s. And she herself says that her number was 4562. So that was completely wrong. And it also seemed to be a sort of very pointless, unforced error for a book that claimed to be so authentic. As you say, this book, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, is a work of fiction. So why does it matter that it's not totally accurate in these ways? Right. So it's historical fiction. So one expects, of course, that with historical fiction, you know, a fictional story is set inside a real world. There's always going to be differences. There are always going to be things that aren't quite right in order to make a story work. And I don't think anyone has a problem with that. I think the real problem with this was that So much had been made of the authenticity of the book, of the factuality of the book. It was spoken about as 95% true and that so much had been made of that and that it turned out really to be a very flimsy claim in the end. And so after it emerged that parts of this book were were factually misleading, was there any fallout? Were there there consequences uh, for the author? Not really. Not not as far as I can tell. I mean, probably a few newspaper articles that were critical. The Auschwitz Memorial Journal article was certainly extremely critical. They ultimately called the book a document of no value. But the book continues to sell as far as I know. And Morris has also gone on to publish a second book in what I believe is now called the Tattooist of Auschwitz series. Hello, I'm Heather Morris, the author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz and the soon-to-be-released Silka's Journey. And that second book is Silka's Journey. That's right. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about Silka's Journey? So just like the first book, it is based on the real-life story of a, a real person, although it's a novel. And in this case, it's based on the story of a woman called Silka Klein. Let me tell you a little bit about Silka. An 18-year-old girl who was found in Auschwitz in 1945 by the Red Army, and who was then transported to a Siberian gulag. If you've read Tattooist, you've heard about her. Silke Klein, who was also at Auschwitz between 1942 and 1945, she was a minor character in the first book, and now this book is about her whole life. And her real life, the life of Cecilia Klein, was just completely incredible. She was at Auschwitz for three years, which in and of itself is a feat of survival that is almost indescribable. Obviously, statistically, most people who walk through those gates never came out again. Not only did she survive Auschwitz, she was then sent to a Russian gulag, Volkuta Gulag, where she was imprisoned for 10 years. 
when I was researching the piece, I spoke to a number of scholars about this and some of them at first didn't believe me that it had been possible for someone to do that because they hadn't even heard of someone who'd been through such a terrible ordeal and had survived. And so how was Silke portrayed in Heather Morris's book? So the character of Silke is, she's like a kind of princess heroine of Auschwitz. It's a really strange representation of a person given the realities of Auschwitz. She's portrayed as incredibly sweet and remarkably beautiful. And Morris attributes the story of Silke's life primarily to the memory of Lali Sokolov, the tattooist of Auschwitz. And this is a really interesting thing to do because there are actually people out there who knew Silke very well. Silke had a stepson called George Kovach. He lives in California and George met Silke numerous times. And Morris actually got in touch with George just before the book was published. She said she couldn't make it available, but what she could do was read some excerpts out. So one night they sat together and she read out some excerpts of Silke's journey. But that did not work out so well. Her representation of his father was completely unrecognisable to George and shortly after that meeting, his attorney got in touch with the publishers and, in fact, the character of Ivan Kovach, George's father, was taken out of the book as a result of that before it was published. But he still was deeply unhappy about the representation of Silke, who he didn't recognise at all from the novel. The fact that this woman was about to be sort of the main character in this hugely successful novel and that she had his stepmother's name was really distressing to him. The publishers said that George really couldn't object to the representation of his stepmother because she was only his stepmother and not a blood relative. And then at that point, George Kovach got in touch with me. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. We're talking about Heather Morris's novel, Silka's Journey, and you spoke to the stepson of Silka, the woman whose life the novel is based on. Christine, what did he tell you? So when George got in touch with me, we started talking about the book and the representation of his stepmother and what could be done about it. And he wanted me to understand what he found so problematic about the book. To begin with, he found the reality of the book just completely unbelievable. The representation of Auschwitz seemed like a strange, light version of the death camp that made no sense. He had some specific objections about Silke. The character of Silke is portrayed as being in a ongoing relationship with two SS officers, and he found those implausible and distressing. How confident are you that you are properly portraying what exactly Silke went, th- went through in Auschwitz? Um, look, I'm very confident, and uh, I suspect the Auschwitz Museum are not going to be happy with it either once they read it. 
What, what, why do you suspect that? Because they don't like uh, it being portrayed that the Germans in any way raped or sexually assaulted Jewish girls. And he also thought that the scene, there's a scene where she steals drugs in the gulag and he thought that was not like her character at all. When he knew her, she was very upright, very upstanding person. Stealing drugs in a gulag would have hurt many other people and he thought that was, that was not quite real. Okay. You, you don't think you're distorting history? I mean, the Auschwitz no, Memorial has some fairly strong credentials as well. They do, absolutely. But I don't think I am. And I come back to the notion that, as with the tattooist, I am not telling the story of the Holocaust. I'm just telling a story. So George reached out in a state of great distress about the representation of Silka, and he wanted journalists to look into what Morris had actually done with this character, where she'd gotten her research and how she was able to make these claims. And he didn't believe the stories about Silke's time at Auschwitz. He thought it was a composite character and he wanted me to see what I could find out. What did you find out about the real Silke? So I started looking into Silke Klein at Auschwitz and I found a woman of that name who was remembered by many survivors and this was in testimony that had been taken in 1945, written down in the 1960s, video recorded in the 1990s. She was remembered by many people and she was actually referred to by some of them as the notorious Silke or the famous Silke. So in all of these stories, there's a young Slovak girl called Silka, and she's in charge of a block that's sort of a barracks or a dorm at Auschwitz, and it's known as Block 25. And in such a nightmarish, hellish place, this was surely one of the worst places because this was where women were sent before they were then sent to the gas chambers. They were warehoused in this block. So to be forced to be in charge of that place would have been one of the most nightmarish, excruciating things that could happen to anyone, let alone to a young girl. But she was remembered as a sadistic and vicious and a terrifying person by many different survivors. There are quotes taken from people in the 90s who remembered her as very cruel, as repulsive. They talked about her raging unrestrainedly at her companions. They talked about her arrogance and sadistic violence. They talked about her taking food from prisoners and selling it or keeping it for herself. There was also a story that was common to a number of these stories that in her duties as the head of Block 25 as someone who had to escort or scream at or push or get these people, dying people, onto the cart to go to the gas chambers, she actually had to put her own mother onto the cart and send her there. Some of the representations of the story are people talking with a sense of agony about how awful that would have been, but some of them talk about this young girl boasting of having to do it. So how did finding all of this out about Silka, how, how did that affect her stepson when you, when you told him? When I shared these testimonies with George, it was incredibly distressing for him. He spent at least one night, he described it as not being able to sleep, as wandering through the house, looking at pictures of his father and his stepmother and asking himself, could she have done this? Could this have been her? What about my father? Why didn't he know? Surely he would have known. He was a very smart man. Ivan Kovac was a lawyer and it was just this deeply disturbing and incredibly painful experience for him. So in the end, I I think George's position was that 
it didn't matter. He didn't believe that the soaker of the survivor testimonies was his soaker, but that it didn't matter if she did terrible things. He certainly understands that people had to do all sorts of things to survive at Auschwitz. What really mattered to him was that this person, this author, had come into their lives, had taken this testimony, used it in the way that she'd used it to create this entirely fictional character, but she hadn't given this character a fictional name. She gave her the name of his stepmother. Christine, does this go to the the bigger question of how truth is being undermined in our day and age? I'm I'm talking here about fake news and the re-emergence of Holocaust denialism. I think it absolutely does. I think this book does risk being actual Holocaust denialism. The representation of the place and the decisions people had to make are, are not real. You know, there's a comment, I think, in one of the author's notes about going to the core of what was true, you know, as fiction truly can do, as really great fiction does for us, as going to the spirit of people's lives. But I, I don't think that this book does that. And I think that in these times of rising anti-Semitism, creating a a kind of Holocaust light or using the Auschwitz death camp as a theatre prop is really disturbing and problematic. And I think it would lead people potentially to believe that Auschwitz simply wasn't as bad as it was. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Join Richard Tognetti and the ACO for a bold and intrepid 2022. Featuring a live national concert season, their acclaimed on-demand film series ACO Studio Casts, and exciting programs from their new home in Sydney's Walsh Bay. Subscriptions now on sale at aco.com.au. Also in the news, as the global death toll for coronavirus overtakes the SARS epidemic, it's been revealed that the federal government rejected a proposal from the New South Wales Health Department to accommodate Australian citizens evacuated from Wuhan. Instead, evacuees were sent to Christmas Island, a move that's been criticised by the president of the Australian Medical Association. And heavy rain in New South Wales has finally extinguished the massive Currawan fire on the state's south coast. The blaze burned for 74 days and ripped through nearly half a million hectares. The Bureau of Meteorology is predicting one of the biggest rainfall events in decades across much of the state, and flash flooding warnings have been issued up and down the coast. The testimony you heard from Lali Sokolov at the beginning of this episode comes from the USC Shoah Foundation, interview number 24716. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.